we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hello and welcome to Batlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. As usual, we're gathered around the kitchen table in the luxurious offices of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to make great books. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of My Own Misfortune <laughs> and other stories. I'm also the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. This is going to be a slightly different show, folks, as we are focusing not on one specific book. We're going to talk about what we've been doing over the past six weeks since we were last gathered together, uh, basically what we read on our holidays. Yeah, uh, this is... Uh, in a, we always like to shake things up on Backlisted uh, Listener, as you know. And so this is our summer reading episode. And what normally people do for summer reading is they invite celebrities or special guests in to talk about what they're going to be reading in the summer. But what we've decided to do is have no special guests, no celebrities, and do it retrospectively. At the end of the summer. At the end of the summer. But, uh, <coughs> a kind of round-up, an actual round-up. Are you, are you saying I'm not a special guest, then? You are, you we're well, joined, as usual, by... We are joined, Clayton. as usual, by Matthew Clayton, uh, author and celebrity. Thank you. <laughs> and also, we're joined by our producer, Matt, <laughs> who normally is sitting... Because we don't have a guest. Table. I've got a microphone. He's got a microphone all of his own this time, <laughs> right. everyone. Um, and we should say the hissing noise that you can hear in the background is brought to you by the very fine uh, uh, high-wire... Uh, uh, Brewery company, um, I think. No, Magic Rock. Uh, Magic Rock. Yeah. yeah, that's a high wire grapefruit. Oh, is it? They've they, they all got, got different. Uh, they've I've got, got a, different. Names. I've got a salty kiss at the moment. Um, we've let. Yeah. <laughs> I think we. we I'm actually, in I, I, can, I can say we've just subscribed to an extremely cool um, new company called Beer Bods. Who, um, who uh, bring in Friday beers for us every Friday, which is excellent. You just subscribe and they come and you don't know. You, they basically, we pick some beers with a magic fifth ingredient, malt, water, yeast, hops, and, well, you'll have to try them and see. Anyway, it's great. Um, any potential sponsors out there? Feel free to get in touch. <laughs> I, I, for instance, will be happy to uh, <laughs> nest, lay or round trees if they'd like to get in touch. <laughs> Very welcome to dump a load of Mars bars. But Andy, here, I'm right. yes, I have to sure. say, let's be honest, yes. the way we always start is the way we ought to start this time. Oh, and to God. say, okay. what haven't you been reading? <laughs> See, I've well, seen the pile of books that you've read over the summer on Twitter and it is a, it is a, 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 it's a, babel, a Tower of Babel, if I may say. Well, so. OK, so I, I I'm going to. Uh, the last time I said something like this, I said it at a festival and people uh, booed me. <laughs> so, okay, so, but, it, but it's fat. I'm in ready to Before you introduced your live reading of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, but, so I'm in the, the but in the spirit of, in the spirit of factual accuracy, right? So I have read, I read between September the 1st last year and September the 1st. This year, 2016, I read 137 books. It is amazing. Right? I think, I can't believe I've ever read more books in a year than that. And I also, on on August the 31st, I finished um, Family and Friends by Anita Bruckner. And that is the 100th book I've read this year to date. Is that that because of this programme? It is partly because of this programme, yeah. 
Yeah, which I hadn't really appreciated when we started doing this would require so much... If you were a broken uh, man. ...working pleasure, let's call it. <laughs> that is, I mean, that's remarkable. I haven't done a count, largely because it would be so much lower than that, I would be humiliated. But it's going to be I, like the Bowie list well, all over it's, again, well, isn't it? Maybe not quite so, so uh, um, uh, you know. I think the, the point is that we're... I, I think we should say that we're all reading a lot more and a lot more interestingly as yeah, a result yeah, of yeah, that which is one of the things that why we thought it might be fun just to, to throw a pile of um, uh, stuff into the pot for this, uh, for this so, podcast. So what I've done is, like the books that I've read over the summer, I've, I've divided those into categories... And I'm going to give, as we go along, I'm going to give an example of each categories. category, right? And the categories are like new books, books that I read because I had to talk to the author at a festival. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, catching up with backlisted titles, because I've read a few Great. things that we've covered on backlisted in the past year or so, and also books by Anita Bruckner. So <laughs> that's how those break down. But I also <laughs> wanted to share with you before we start. I've, John, I've, I've read this to you before, but we never, we've never done it on uh, the podcast. So this is so I read 137 books in a, a year, and I'm going to read you my favourite paragraph from any of those books, that, uh, which is sort of relevant to what we're going to talk about and what we've been talking about. And it's from uh, a novel by uh, I want to say friend of Backlisted, but she's dead. Uh, <laughs> but it's by Elizabeth Taylor from uh, A View at the Harbour, right? And this, so this is my favourite paragraph that I have read in the last year. Okay. Uh, and it's uh, the person uh, being described is a writer. Okay, and she's sitting at her desk. She dipped her pen into the ink. Vague what? She began to wonder once more. This isn't writing, she thought miserably. It is just fiddling about with words. I'm not a great writer. Whatever I do, someone else has always done it before and better. In ten years' time, no one will remember this book. The libraries will have sold off all their grubby copies of it second-hand, and the rest will have fallen to pieces, gone to dust. And, even if I were one of the great ones, who in the long run cares? People walk about the streets, and it is all the same to them if the novels of Henry James were never written. They could not easily <laughs> care less. No one asks us to write. If we stop, who will implore us to go on? The only goodness that will ever come out of it is surely this moment now, wondering if vague will do better than faint. <laughs> Should my editor be listening to this, yes, my next book will be late. <laughs> um, uh, that's, uh, that is perfect. And that's a wonderful... But, so of those 137 books, six were by Elizabeth Taylor, and, six, and, that, and that was as a result of doing this podcast, even though we you haven't done Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor, Taylor yet. yet. Yeah, you know, uh, it was uh, a recommendation by Lloyd Shepard, who came in to do Riddle, Riddle of the Sands, yeah. had said to me, uh, one of the other books he wanted to choose was Angel by Elizabeth Taylor. Was just, so that's been a huge source of pleasure to me this year. I never would have... And I never would have found her, or would have found her in a different way if it wasn't for doing the podcast, so... Thanks very much, Lloyd. Thanks, Backlisted. Excellent. So what haven't you been reading, John? Oh, well, I haven't been reading... I, I've exactly... Similar to Andy, I've been reading books, uh, basically, that either that we're thinking about publishing at Unbound, some of whom... Some of which have been terrific, some of which have been less terrific, as you'd expect. Um, I've been reading books largely to... The, um, in, interviewing people. I've done a lot of festivals. I went to festival number six at the weekend... <laughs> And uh, I, it was not only was it the sixth festival I've been to, but it was definitely the last one for a while. But I, had a, I had a fantastic time. But was I, it I, the sixth level of hell? As well, well, no, no, no. It, it, look, I really, really enjoyed myself, but the weather was, I mean, truly atrocious. I, and I, I heard I've a never... story about you walking around with a group of Welsh speakers for That's a while. That's correct. Is that yeah, true? I was. I was. I, I rumours um, of this. I was. I, yeah, I, I can't say much of the Welsh language is rubbed off on me, but their uh, <laughs> their infectious spirit in the rain helped. <laughs> I did give a talk. One of the things I. How many words is there in Welsh for rain? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Many, I would say. Um, but the, I did a talk uh, at Port Elliot and various other places. Um, uh, what's the other? Well, I won't go through them all. But um, they were, they, it was very jolly. I did a talk on cheerfulness. The last time I gave it was at the weekend in a cagoule in the... Literally, <laughs> it was pissing down with rain. But I, I read around, so I had to do a bit of research to do that. And I, there are a couple of things that I read that I really enjoyed, which I might 
I might um, I vouchsafe. And one little bit of um, little bit of a, a reading which um, cheered me up no end, even though the pages were soggy by the end of it. Um, it's amazing, isn't it? You must have that where you do the yeah. same thing and you do one festival and it's brilliantly warm and sunny and everybody's sort of stretched out on the grass and you think this is great. And then you do it to another and you think it's nobody, nobody, nothing I can say is going to make anybody feel better about the fact that they're all wandering around in But life. you know what? This is, this is a thing that um, the comedian Stuart Lee talks about a lot in his books, is the idea of this thing. He, it, it, context is not a myth. You know, a talk on cheerfulness de- delivered to people lounging in the sunshine is essentially a totally different thing, even if it's exactly the same talk, if it's delivered in the rain. And you shouldn't, you know, pretend that it isn't. You have to engage with the reality of it as it's happening in front of you. I did my talk, Read Yourself Fitter, down at number six a couple of years ago. And um, uh, number six, it would be fair to say certainly in that year was not the most uh, rigorously organised of festivals. It has got a lot better, I should say. I mean, they have really... I mean, it's much bigger as well this year. But they upgraded me from a tent, which which I was (laughs) expecting to address 100 people in. To the to the village square in Port Merion, oh, yeah, yeah. where where the prison in the in the episode of the prisoner, which started filming fifty years ago this week, it was this in, and week. In, in in the episode of the prisoner, uh, I think free for all, there's the election where the prisoner gets uh, runs for election, and so they gave me this awful awful but irresistible opportunity <laughs> to stand where the prisoner stood. On that kind of balcony. Yeah, 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 shouting, Balistrate. oh, rotten cabbages <laughs> at, the, at the audience. And I, I came off to think, well, that was one of the most glorious and also stressful things I've <laughs> ever done in my whole life. And I Great. flowed on from a comedy skull band. Right, I had to flow yeah, on from oh, a comedy skull band. I had to go on and shout at people for an hour about why they should read Tolstoy. It, <laughs> it was quite... I, that's piazza, quite right? upsetting. I, I, I've done that piazza gig, and it was, it was sort of what I was doing at the weekend, but it, was, you know, it wasn't a piazza so much as a mudslide. And, <laughs> and, and, and serious, you know, when the rain really starts to sheet in in North Wales, I mean, there's no, there's no hiding from it. Um, but it, I, did, I did it. It's, it's that thing. I did it one year. I did a talk about Laudanum there, which everybody could kind of. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, I was there that year. Yeah, so it was. It was fun, and it was. There was a really eclectic <coughs> mix of people. There was sort of Sam Lee, the folk singer, talking, and then I did something. There were, and I, I do think that one of the fun things about festivals now, and I, having talked to friends who from abroad, there isn't anything really like. Uh, the, the UK festival circuit, certainly in Europe, where you have music, spoken word, comedy, and all the kind of all the kind of uh, cross fertilizations in between, all in one place. Do you think that's because Glastonbury was the kind of the big daddy, and everything's percolated out from that and taken a bit of the literary comedy performance? I don't know. I wonder if it. it was. Yeah, I wonder if it was almost like there were sort of different cultures. You had the sort of Glastonbury music, pure music, yeah. and then you had Hay, the Hay Festival, yeah. which was pure, and they sort of. They kind of created crossbreeds, like Latitude, I think, was the first where I was really I think really Port aware. Elliot was one of the first, really. Yeah. Port Elliot took that spirit of a literary festival and added music to it. But yeah. also, they're all quite different. What's interesting is, in terms of audiences, I think they're quite different from one another. I think, like, the Port Elliot audience is quite different from, say... Um, like, I was at Green Man uh, a couple of weekends ago. The audience is very different to the, the Port Elliot audience, and it's different again for number six, and it's different again at Shambhala. End of the Road. I was at. You know, that how was, was that? That was quite different. <laughs> was it? I haven't seen more. I haven't really. I've never seen as many leotards and uh, misapplied <laughs> glitter in my life. It was great. Yeah. I mean, it was well, very I jolly. I was at a uh, Fort Process at the weekend, <laughs> which is uh, like which Fort is, Boyard, which is a little bit like yeah, Fort, Fort Dunlop, Boyard, you know. um, which is an ex- less opportunity it, kind of experimental <laughs> art festival great. that takes place in a Second World War fort in New Haven. Wow, uh, that sounds, that it sounds was like extraordinary, great. absolutely extraordinary. If you like the, you know, uh, music that goes like this, at very, very well. Let's be honest, you're not averse to a bit of that. I'm not averse to a bit of that, but there was a lot of that. Yeah, I must say, my festival high points, my festival high points were musical, though. John and I both saw. Michael Chapman playing in a tent at Port Elliot, who was just best thing I've seen in a long out time. of this world. That yeah. and Boningen. I have to Did say. Did you get? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. oh that's good, that, wasn't it? They're good. I thought they were amazing. Yeah. Well, mine was. Japanese sorry, metal. mine was uh, Dexter Petley. Oh, Dexter Petley. Petley. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, the kind of the outsider angling writer yeah, hasn't yeah. been in the UK oh, no, for 15 years. Fascinating. Um, at Port Elliot, John Andrews. 
uh, kind of almost breaking down when he introduced him um, to a small tent of aficionados, Dexter Petty aficionados. That was a really, that was one of the. That, was that a could be a really good pun, couldn't it? An angler and aficionados. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Um, and I also, my, again, my other festival highlight was at Green Man was seeing Michael Rota from Noi uh, playing in, uh, in a tent. And I went along thinking, oh, well, this will be all right. You know, Michael Rota, is in his 70s, it'll be OK. It was so phenomenally brilliant. Really? Yeah, oh, God almighty. And, and, he, was, and he was picking all the best stuff from the harmonia and the Noi and his solo stuff, an hour and he looked, and it was one of those amazing performances where the tent was really packed with people who were really into it, and clearly that energy was making its way up on stage. And he just looked delighted, delighted to be there, delighted that people knew yeah. what this music was. I mean, it's basically, which has been pretty, you know, with the best will in the world, has been pretty obscure for a pretty long time. Yeah, that was, it. That was extraordinary, yeah. Um, and I also I want to also mention I don't know if any any of you saw at Port Elliot our former guests um, Joel Morris and Jason Hazley. <laughs> yeah, I saw them late one evening. I did. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes, no, they, they, were, they were very. They were in the um, they were Idler in the, the Idler Academy, which is where the, I have to say that was probably my literary highlight of the summer was seeing them read uh, advanced text from uh, the Ladybird Book of the Zombie Apocalypse. <laughs> was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, so and really, and the audience were really with them as well. It was really, really funny, really, really good event. Um, yeah, I, uh, my, I mean, I'm always. I, I, it's since I had my epiphany to my techno epiphany two years ago. <laughs> I, I've seen I've seen Andrew Weatherall twice this uh, this festival season. Once at Port Elliot, where he was awesome, and and, and recently just at Sat on Saturday night at Festival Number Six, where he was equally weekly remarkable. Um, you know, I'm a late convert, as you know, to the swirling, uh, mystical complexity John's of techno. John's first volume of poetry, uh, Techno Epiphany, will be, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will be published soon, I hear. Yeah, I was, uh, Lee Braxton, the uh, Faber and Faber, reminded me that. And in fact, I was so impressed by, by <laughs> this is such a, such a ridiculous publishery response that I'd blogged about, um, <laughs> about my conversion to, uh, to techno. But we're let's talk. We're, talk, we're not here really to talk about music. We're here to talk about books. And oh. we'll come, let's let's dig into what are some of the stuff that you that you've been reading. Okay, I did another event at Port Elliot with a writer called Kieran Pym about his book Jumping Jack Flash, uh, which is a biography of a man called David Litvinoff. And try to explain oh, yeah. who David Litvinoff is. It takes Kieran the four hundred page book, a brilliant four hundred page book. I will try and tell you in a nutshell who he was. He's one of those shadowy sixties figures who connects Chelsea and the East End and Soho. He worked for the Craze. He knew Lucian Freud. There's a painting by Freud of David Litvinoff on the cover. He was the technical advisor on the film performance. Uh, what that actually means <laughs> in terms of technical advice is many of the ideas and, the di and much of the dialogue and indeed the inspiration for the film is based on Litvinoff himself. Uh, isn't isn't techni technical advisor... A just means drug dealers. Donald Camel and and there's some of that too. <laughs> Donald Camel, yeah. the director, didn't really do much after performance, did he? No, he, he makes was, a film called What He Makes of Wise the, 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 the Eye, yeah. which is also famous because of it's about the only other film I can remember. Kathy Moriarty, the amazing actress in Raging, oh, yeah, Raging right. Bull, that's she, right, that's she, right. she stars in that. But I would have expected her to have a much. But, it, but it's one of those, it's going back to Jumping Jack Flash, it, and he knew the Stones, which is why it's called Jumping Jack Flash, and he was one of the great collectors of blues records of that era. Eric Clapton, there's an interview in the book with Eric Clapton where Eric Clapton says, you know, basically, if it came to the blues, who knew about the blues in Britain in the 60s? It was me, it was Keith, it was Brian, and it was David Lipnoff. You know, he was the only guy you could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with who would first of all know the record you were talking about and come up with a better one you didn't know about. Uh, and that sounds great. I love the. No, it's such book. a good book. But uh, to give you, in, was he not it, quite unpleasant though? It, I, it, he's think, a he is a he is a deeply. I, I think in, in maybe in a review or two. A deeply amusing and unsavoury man. Yeah. Uh, in equal measure, and um, Kieran had access to tape recordings of Litvinov, which 
are a bit like... You know how when you're a... I think Pete Perfides says this. He's absolutely right. You know when, how when you're a teenager, the first time you see Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan film, you think, wow, look at Bob Dylan. Look what a cool guy Bob Dylan is, putting those people in their place. And then when you see it 20 years later when you're in your 30s or 40s, you think, why is Bob Dylan being so rude to everyone? Right? <laughs> <laughs> in the single word answer, amphetamine. Yeah, I see, well, well, yes, yeah. and indeed in Litvinov's case, that's probably true. You know, yeah. Litvinov liked his drug use as well. But what you have and what, why Kieran's book is so good and also I think important is it manages to tell you the story of the 60s that we've all heard a lot uh, and make it fresh and make it new and make you understand why the coming together of different types of people from different uh, disciplines and classes is a sort of uniquely 60s experiment that might not be repeatable Um, and uh, you know again our former guest will say, be saying this a lot today, but Jonathan Green, um, who knows this area all probably better than anyone else, uh, gave an absolutely incredible review for this book, saying this is sort of the most important book to be published in this area in the last 20 years. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and that, well, that's, that's, pretty, that's a pretty powerful encounter. Yeah, yeah. And the event that we did at Port Elliot, he, he, um, Kieran had invited a couple of his friends who are actors to act out bits of the book. This is my favourite part of the event. So they acted out a couple of bits of the book. And I'd ask here, and I said, so when you were writing this book, did you sort of, do you like David Litvinoff? You, you know, this guy, you know, he doesn't seem a very likeable guy. Did you like him? He said, well, you know, he was, he was sort of... Yeah, I don't know. I could sort of respect him. Anyway, when it, when Kieran's friends were then reading out bits of these transcripts of Litvinov's appalling behaviour, Kieran was just sitting there laughing and laughing and laughing. He clearly got Stockholm syndrome as a result of spending five years longer, longer with this with this this crazy inspirational dead guy. But but I cannot recommend that book highly enough. It's absolutely wonderful. Four hundred pages. I read it in like a couple of days or something. Couldn't put it down. Wonderful. Cool. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that the Venn diagram that links the four of us is a pretty meagre one, isn't it? <laughs> like, maybe none, except for you what two. You oh, I see. I'm the books that we've read. Oh, I the see. I'm books that we've read. as human beings, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like four completely perfect circles <laughs> on top of it. Like a, kind of a, like a slinky. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, pushing, I'm pushing it too far. Falling downstairs. Uh, bad, bad metaphors. Yeah. Um, no, but there is one book that I know you two, Matt and Matthew, have read, which is the Booker-winning uh, uh, large uh, tome from Marlon James called uh, A Seven History, A Brief History of Seven Killings. Yeah, so I, I, I picked up in Bridport. So I've turned into this thing of... Uh, and Bridport's become important to me um, because it's, kind of, it's a stopping point down to the West Country. And it's a great book town. It's a great place to stop if you want to buy books. So uh, for the last few years, heading down to Cornwall, me and my family have stopped in Bridport to buy books. There's a Waterstones there. There's a great independent booksellers. There's a lovely second-hand bookshop, and there's a bunch of charity shops as well. It's also so I picked it's got it port in its name, and it's not actually a port, is it? The port That's is true. Kind of... And there's a literary prize. There's a Bridport literary prize. That's interesting. Yeah, so, well, is it bridge? Does that stand for bridge? I don't know, but the port's like, it's like three miles inland or something. Wind it back in, you two. Wind it back in. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought it there, and I, and, I've, and I loved it. You're only you're about halfway through I'm, it. I'm halfway through it. It's, <clears throat> the book's about... It's centred on the attempted assassination, which really happened, the attempted assassination really happened, of Bob Marley just before the 1976 election in uh, Jamaica when he was shot in his um, compound in the middle of Kingston. Um, and the, the, the uh, reason that um, Marlon James has managed to construct something around it is that the killers were never... Or the, the attempted killers, the assassins, were never caught. And nobody knows who did it. Um, and the book, interestingly enough, uh, Eric Clapton has a walk-on part, previously mentioned, because there's a bit where they discuss about a racist singer singing I Shot the Sheriff and then standing on stage and... Uh, cl- proclaiming for the NF in in, uh, in the UK, but it's just so much more than that. It's uh, it's told from the part from the point of view of a number of di- a lot of different characters, uh, CIA agents based in uh, Kingston, um, a woman that Marley's had a one night stand with, a couple of young boys from different parts of the ghetto in um, Kingston. You've got to remember as well that that, that that Kingston at that point and Jamaica at that point was riven by politics that. 
that you were one side or the other. There were two political parties, and they really hated each other. One was socialist, and and there were worries that they were going to become uh, that. Um, Jamaica was going to become another outpost of, of communism in the Caribbean, um, and the other was quite a kind of right-wing government that was supported by the CIA and various other um, nefarious kind of uh, uh, interests. And it's just, I, th- I thought, I mean, I've not finished it yet, but I think it's a brilliant book. And I enjoyed it. I mean, I don't think it's a masterpiece. Um, I, it reminded me, the, one of the other books I read but this summer was... we don't bandy was, that term around lightly on I'm not show. going to. We're not going to do that, are we? No. Um, City on Fire which is a book about New York in the 70s that is, again, oh, yeah. an ambitious book. It's a 1,000 yeah. pages long. Um, and I had this, a similar feeling about that as I did about Brief History of Seven, Seven Killings. I really enjoyed them, but they didn't really uh, live with me that much longer. They're, um, I don't think they're extraordinary pieces of writing. So did you... And why did you two gentlemen decide you wanted to read A Brief History of Seven Killings? I'd actually been given it for my birthday. So I, th- I think just because I'm interested in the music of the... Because it's got a record label on the cover. <laughs> I think that's... Yeah, that's okay. a good one. You know, and, I quite, and I'm quite yeah. interested in 60s Jamaican music. It was as yeah, simple yeah. as that, really. It's, you know, it's... A, it's and, did yeah. the, uh, and, and did the fact that it had won the Man Booker Prize uh, make any difference to how you felt about reading the book when you started reading it? Yes, I think it did. I think my, it, my, my expectations of it were um, different from what it actually... Because I think it's very much like an Irving Welsh well, book. It's really not the sort of book that I think would win the Booker Prize. Well, I'm interested in, in prizes because there's a, always a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk about whether, why prizes work. I mean, we sort of know that prizes do work. Yeah. Generally, the Booker Prize works. Not all of them. But there is this, there is this sort of thing that happens. Maybe years ago, Andy, we did some research... At, at, at Waterstones, just asking people about prizes. And the interesting thing was that what people said was it wasn't necessarily that they thought it was going to be a good book, but it was a book that they felt there was a context to so that when they read it, they would, ha- they would be able to share their experiences hmm. with other people because there was a much better chance. Okay. There are some people, I think, who really, really love to be early adopters and to, and to be pioneers and who will go out and read stuff that yeah. is obscure and, 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 and difficult. But a lot of people, it's an interesting thing. I, I'm sure this is why book groups sort of took off, which sort of have taken off in the, in the last 20 yeah. years in a major way, is that people like to contextualise their reading. They like to talk to other people. They like to sort of uh, swap opinions. It's a sort of reading as a social activity, which I guess is something that, we're, you know, we're, it's what we're engaged in too. It's what we're, well, we're doing know, with, with the podcast. The reason why I, the, the reason why I asked um, Matthew and Matt that is like I've I have read two Booker Prize winners this summer, uh, one by Anita Brooke, <laughs> and, um, which I'll do that indeed, and the other by Ian McEwan, which I, was Amsterdam. So Amsterdam wins the Booker Prize in 1998. Yeah, I, almost forgot I, bought, I bought a copy in 1998 and it's sat on the shelf ever since. And I should, from context, I have read, I have read most of Ian McEwan's other novels. And I'm writing about him. And books of short stories, and indeed I'm writing about him, so I thought I ought to catch up with some of the ones that I hadn't read. Hey, let's pick this up again shortly. And I went into Amsterdam thinking... I don't know why I thought... I th- the, the Booker Prize seems a tremendous weight to hang round the neck of quite so a slender book. book, right, you know? And, it's, and you know the thing about Amsterdam, people, anecdotally, people seem not to like Amsterdam as much as they like some of the other Ian McEwan books. But take on its own terms, Amsterdam is fine. It's quite lightweight. It's fun. It's, it's, it's sort of rather silly in a way. It's, but it's a bit like a Maupassant short story, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yet, as soon as you start thinking of it as... A book this won the yeah. Booker Prize. Well, it's interesting you know, that I, think, well, I had can't to, bear the yeah. weight of that. It's interesting that I had to qualify that by saying it's not a masterpiece. You know, it doesn't have to be, does it? But maybe only I only yeah. said that simply because it had won the Booker. But, so I felt that it had to have that tag around it. So, I, mean, I think it's interesting you said that. But I imagine, given that it is nearly 700 pages about quite an esoteric subject, um, that Seven Killings, there's no way that the number of people who have read Seven Killings would have read it. Yeah. If it wasn't a yeah, Booker okay. Prize winner. Yeah. You know, 700 pages on the attempted assassination of Bob Marley and the politics of Jamaica in the kind of yeah, it's great. mid-1970s. I mean, I, I can't it see... Broadens, it's broadened a lot of people's horizons, I imagine. The thing that I enjoyed reading most, though, this summer was um, 
backlist relate, backlisted related, which was the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. tell us picked, about that. Which I picked up and that. I absolutely loved them. So we did the crack up, if in case people haven't heard it, we did yeah. the crack up with uh, Jesse Armstrong yeah. uh, at Port Elliot. Um, I mean, they are fabulous. Diamond as big as the Ritz. Diamond as big as the Ritz, amazing. Because I presume that was going to be a story about flappers, and it's not. It's this mad story about this kingdom in the middle of nowhere that's with a mountain that's made of diamonds. It's a mad psychedelic story. Like we were saying on the podcast, though, what's so interesting about is the division. You know, the division in in Fitzgerald's lifetime between the short stories which were perceived by other writers and by him as being the things that he did to make money yeah and the novels which were the true art yeah. you know which didn't which didn't sell apart from the first one yeah because it didn't win the Booker Prize <laughs> I mean, I mean here's, a, here's an interesting segue uh, which is uh, talking about prizes the, uh, the the English writer who I think is the best English writer who hasn't won a major literary prize I would uh, I would put forward um I would put forward Rupert Thompson. I, th- I think Rupert okay. Thompson's well written ten remarkable novels. We're, it's not just because we are, he, we, he's, we're very much hoping he will come and be a guest. Um, <laughs> and I'm not just saying that to blow smoke, if you're listening, Rupert. But, um, <laughs> oh, oh, there goes the smoke a lot. I'm in trouble. No, um, but I interviewed him about his... <laughs> I was getting multiple. Stop. Uh, I, I interviewed him about his, his tenth novel, Catherine Carlyle, at uh, Port Elliot. And the thing that for me, it was that he... You know, there are some writers who you feel... Uh, literally the first week I, I started as a bookseller in, back in uh, 1987... Um, Rupert published his first book. It was one of the very early Bloomsbury yeah. novels, Dreams of Leaving. And you know, you kind of read, the, you remember Andy as a bookseller, mm-hmm. your first proofs you read, you're so excited mm. that you, you feel it's <laughs> yeah, the most. Yeah. I remember the very first proof I was given by a rep was a Galant's proof of Mort by Terry Pratchett, which is why I have been absolutely kind of solid in my defence of Terry Pratchett ever, ever since because it was, it, I mean I'd never read anything like it, I, when I had I'd read sort of, do you remember that brilliant passage <coughs> Board of the Rings that was written yeah, 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 yeah. but anyway it was funnier than that Pat Pratchett was good, but also Rupert Thompson so I became a kind of a Rupert Thompson, I wouldn't say fanatic but certainly a kind of a, a zealot and got to know him and um, have read more or less I think I have read all, all his novels and I've read uh, 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 this party has to stop. Is kind of brilliant. Oh, I hear that's fantastic. Oh, great memory. Um, and he's so lovely and sanguine and kind of ageless and elfin. I mean, he, he's, he, he shocked the audience by saying he was sixty. I um, mean, really, yeah, it really doesn't look it. He's, he's, wow. a, he's amazing. And this book is again, it's just beautifully constructed. It's perfectly yeah. written. It's got a, a, a character, a Catherine or Kit, as she known, is is a, a test tube baby. And there's the amazing recurring theme through the book is that she's been frozen for eight years before she is fertilised. So there's this sort of... She said there's this period when she's alive but not alive, which she kind of works into the book. The book, I mean, he's, he's also one of the most European of, of English writers. Um, he was a big fan of the Harville list when I was there. And I think the book he wants to talk to on backlisted is Patrick Modiano's Honeymoon, which was a, a Harville book. Back in it was. I, I read it here over the summer. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. So we can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. <laughs> um, anyway, the um, the the point is that he's just one of those remarkable writers. He doesn't write the same book. He's written sort of science fiction. He's written thrillers. He's written a hit. The last book was 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 set in in, in the Renaissance. It's historical um, about a silversmith. This book is 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 contemporary. But uh, again, I think the the sort of the uh, I mean prizes in the end. Shouldn't mean as much as they do, but it is. It is remarkable what it is that makes. I mean, there's a strange flowing together that happens, sort of alchemy that happens that makes one book rather than another. And a lot of the prizes, when you look back across the the Booker list, it, you'd be hard to say that they are always the best books published in that year, or or even you know sometimes they're on, not even don't even seem to be very good books. But um, anyway, I, was, I just thought Rupert Thompson, he was incredibly generous and, and, yeah. and, 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 as always, incredibly articulate about his work. But Catherine Carlyle definitely won for, um, definitely won for, for anybody who likes intelligent kind of... I mean, the sort of literary fiction that I think is finding it more... That is, I mean, he has got... The other thing he told me, I said, 
was how, how has he managed to survive? Yeah, he yeah. has literally got a benefactor. He has got somebody who, who said, I will publish everything you write. Wow. So he doesn't it's make amazing. a masses. He doesn't make masses of money, but he was at a point where he was he looking a like well, more or less. It was looking like he was going to have to stop altogether. I mean, well, that's the kind of old school patronage that mm-hmm. I think is very mm-hmm. rare, um, and he certainly deserves that. But, but is I mean, it something that may, is, may come more back into fashion? Well, I don't know. In a funny kind of way, I suppose it's slightly what we are, we're trying to do with, with Unbound is that if you've got, I mean, it should be about quality. It shouldn't be about fitting into some neat pre kind of uh, decided genre mm. it should be about I mean that's the great thing about Rupert I think he, he, he dissolves genre he doesn't really he writes a different book every time which is as every publisher will tell you a, a problem when you're trying to position him in a, a market that doesn't really care uh, I um, well we're talking about prior someone who hasn't well uh, Rupert hasn't won the, the, the booker I read another book over the summer that is long listed for this year's Booker Prize, which is called The Sellout by Paul Beatty. Oh, great. Okay, and I'm just going to read, and I'm, I'm saying that I'm going to read you the opening paragraph of The Sellout by Paul Beatty, long listed for the Booker Prize. Whether you listeners get to hear it or not will depend on what Matt decides, <laughs> whether he decides it can go out. But uh, you decide, gentlemen, if you this will decide. make it onto the Booker shortlist. Here we go. Prologue. This may be hard to believe, coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything. Never cheated on my taxes or at cards. Never snuck into the movies or failed to give back the extra change to a drugstore cashier indifferent to the ways of mercantilism and minimum wage expectations. I've never burgled a house, held up a liquor store, never boarded a crowded bus or subway car, sat in a seat reserved for the elderly pulled out my gigantic penis and masturbated to satisfaction with a perverted yet somehow crestfallen look on my face. (laughs) Yet here I am, in the cavernous chambers of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, my car illegally and somewhat ironically parked on Constitution Avenue, my hands cuffed and crossed behind my back, my right to remain silent long since waved and said goodbye to as I sit in a thickly padded chair that much like this country isn't quite as comfortable as it looks. Well, <laughs> it's got Richard say, and Judy written all over it. <laughs> I have to it, say, it's great writing. It is great. the most brilliantly written, yet exhausting thing yeah. I have read for ages. I Why can't see... Because it's relentless. Like, that, that is like, OK, I've, put, I've locked the car into 110 miles an hour and now we're going to go at 110 miles an hour for 200 pages. Watch out, everyone. <laughs> I mean, it, it is simultaneously brilliantly written by about halfway through. I was thinking, oh... oh Exhausted. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, uh, wonderful. But you, you were saying, Matt, you'd read something by him before? Or yeah, he, a, a couple of his things before, um, which I have got back and pulled off the shelves but haven't reread. Since uh, since we had a conversation about that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you showed me that paragraph. I think he's a really interesting writer. I think he's. Uh, I mean, but he wouldn't have been. The point is that he wouldn't have been on the Booker list like two, three years no. ago because it wasn't open to Americans. American no. writers, right? So, and I, you know, I know it's sort of there's a lot of fetching about it which I kind of understand there are few enough prizes and the Booker is the one that ever the man Booker is the one everybody goes for but it it is also it's it's interesting isn't it to have an English uh, a prize that, that, that draws on, on, on the, the US and, and Canada as well as well and the rest of the Commonwealth the, yeah I mean it's it's I guess you do get a really interesting mix I, it's a very curious long list this year I mean I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by it I really like the Folio prize but unfortunately that seems to have Run aground. Miriam Taves was shortlisted for that prize. That's, right. That's an incredible book. Yeah, All um, my puny sorrows. It's a wonderful book. You were talking, John, about doing like backlisted catch-up yeah. reading. So I also read a few things that I wouldn't have read if we hadn't been ta- if we hadn't talked about them on here. I read um, the Harpole Report by J. L. Carr. Oh, J. L. Carr, who we did month on the country yeah, on the yeah. first podcast that we did, and. <laughs> the, the, the extent to which people not writing the same book yeah, twice okay. you know we talked on the podcast didn't we about J.L. Carr never writing the same book the twice you one, would never pick that, this book up this, the Harpo Report which is a book about a primary school the head teacher of primary school oh, that's really cool. funny right a really funny book J.L. Carr himself was for many years the head teacher of a primary school 
You would never, never know it was written by the same person who wrote A Month in the Country. But that's, that's a sign of a good writer. Well, it's, sign, it's a fascinating writer who would take... Clearly, many of the things he wrote about were drawn from personal experience, and yet he had a way of, of yeah. approaching them completely differently every time, depending on what, would, what had caught his imagination or yeah. what had inspired him. You know, so I read that. That was wonderful. That was very funny. I read. I remember we talked about the winter book by Tuve mm-hmm. uh, Janssen. I read her last, her final novel, which is called Fair Play, yeah. uh, which again is a very autobiographical book based on her life um, with her partner, who was also an artist, and that was that was really special. Um, very moving, very, very spare by that point. I mean, I think it isn't even 100 pages long. Um, at the campsite I was staying at, there was someone reading the summer book. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's one. And I Have wanted to go, oh, no, they, no, were, they were French, I wanted to go book. and say... Summer book and winter book. Yeah, the, you know, I, I do these po- podcasts and... <laughs> we did they this. Really, we did this. And what were you were telling me? What were your... You, you, so, they were, what were your kids reading? Oh, I, had this, I had this terrible <laughs> campsite at home where my children have been reading Mallory Towers, uh, Enid Blyton. God. Um... And my daughter loves it, and my son reads absolutely anything, so he just picks it up. Um, but he started adopting the language that's in there. So there's this awful moment on the camera. And, and presumably, and also the, uh, the outfits as well. We'd like that. Luckily, not the school, outfits. Man. But there was this, this awful moment on the campsite where we'd been the only English family there, and then another English family arrived. It was a small campsite, and they, their children were playing in the playground, as were mine. And my son shouted to me from the, from the top of this uh, scaffoldy thing, shouted, Dad, be a brick and go and get my towel. <laughs> <laughs> and I could see this, uh, this other family, you know, they were just sharing little glances like, oh, my God. It's very embarrassing. Well, well, the thing that I've enjoyed reading most with my son to this, this summer, this, which has been kind of really entertaining to go back to, was, and it's, uh, it's a, co- a co- collection of newspaper strips by uh, Bill Waterson, Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, yeah, uh, my son's strips. been reading yeah. and, and Hobbes. it's brilliant reading Clayton. those with a child who's the age of the child in the strips because all of a sudden you get that huge kind of, like, recognition of him saying somebody this age can get away with this, with being this yeah. ridiculous. It's just yeah. so brilliant. What The, the light bulb goes off over I, his head I, every time. I really miss the boys are sort of all too old. To, my youngest is now reading the collected H.P. Lovecraft story. Yes! <laughs> massive time. We had this... I said, to, I said to him the other day, I said, Rory, I, I would just dip in and out. I don't think you should try and blast <laughs> your way all through like, like, Ask him, ask him. Right, right. The thing about Lovecraft, because I read some Lovecraft um, for the Year of Ring Dangerously. I didn't write about it. The thing about Lovecraft, which really... Which, I love... We must do Lovecraft yeah, on here, to, right? We, we have to, to get someone to come in and talk about Lovecraft. The thing about Lovecraft, <laughs> the horror writer, the understand, the, who was Kim never published, who, who, who yeah. never got a book out in his lifetime. There's a reason for it. I'll tell you what it is. He couldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> he was no good at writing. And yet... Because he cannot phrase a sentence in a pleasing literary manner, he can take you places that a literary writer would never be able to. That's the genius in it. The insane genius of it. Awful racist. Awful anti-Semite, H.P. Lovecraft. It's a horrible, horrible man. But on the other hand... But a good, a good storyteller. <laughs> master, master storyteller, if you will, yeah. What, uh, where do you start uh, with Lovecraft, then? What should you read? Uh, Colour Out of Space. No, Colour Out of Space. Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Uh, How do you say that? Yeah, nobody knows. I just did. I'm not repeating it. It won't come. It never comes out the same way twice. That's part of the the uncanny nature of it. Did you see the uh, Did you see the website where Cthulhu was running for the US presidency? <laughs> yes, this, I did. Yes, this I did year. That, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and speaking of um, speaking of uh, not nice men and anti semites, <laughs> I also is read... this next person also no, dead? Please. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Go I ahead. also read. Uh, as a result of stuff we've Celine. done Celine! You read Celine! So, yeah, people may remember that when Selena Gordon came in and we did a brilliant episode about Last Exit to Brooklyn, she said, you know, one of the other books I loved when I was a teenager was Journey to the End of the Night by Louis Ferdinand Selene. And we were talking about it, weren't we? And I yeah, said, yeah. I've never read it. I... I bought a copy in Waterstones on staff discount yep. 25 years ago. <laughs> I had since to, I when had it's Marion yeah, Boyers. Yeah, Marion Boyers, right. Yeah. So since when it's sat on the shelf. So I thought, OK, well... You know, I, I, I like a challenge. I like a reading challenge. 
like 450 pages long during the end of the night by Louis Ferdinand Singh. So I read that over the summer. It's literally the worst summer reading choice. <laughs> I, I just, it just grinds on remorselessly. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I didn't enjoy it at all. And also, What's one of those about? books... What's it? Oh, it's about 400 pages. It's also one of those books where you open it and you know by the third page that there will be no um, letter. Let yeah. <laughs> that it will go on and on and on until it stops. There will be no dawn. Right, and there will be no dawn. I'm just going to read a little bit here, right? It so. sounds much like Matthew's... Uh, it's the literary equivalent of Matthew's techno festival. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, you can, so curl up on the beach with this, right? So this is the First World War. So for night after idiotic night, we crept from ambush to ambush, sustained only by the decreasingly plausible hope of coming out alive, that and no other. And if we did come out alive, one thing was sure, that we'd never, absolutely never forget that we had discovered on Earth a man shaped like you and me, but a thousand times more ferocious than the crocodiles and sharks with wide-open jaws that circled just below the surface around the shiploads of garbage and rotten meat that get chucked overboard in the Havana roadstead. The biggest defeat in every department of life is to forget, especially the things that have done you in and to die without realising how far people can go in the way of crumminess. When the grave lies open before us, let's not try to be witty. But on the other hand, let's not forget, but make it our business to record the worst of human viciousness we've seen without changing what's one word. When that's done, we can curl up our toes and sink into the pit. That's work enough for a lifetime. Wow. Etc. Et <laughs> and now, on. what I'm, and I think, so what on. the only response to that is, it, it, you might find it more engaging in its original French. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? And here's the thing: I hope, I hope the person who did this isn't listening to this, right? So I said on Twitter, oh, "I've just started reading Happy Days Are Here Again." I've just started reading uh, at the End of the Night" by Celine, and they said, "Oh." Very, there's only one English translation. It's very inferior. Yeah. <laughs> you think, OK, I haven't even started yet. I can't, you know, I'm sorry about it. I haven't got the journals. I can't, you know, I can't, you know, I can't. I'm just trying my best. I feel, I feel drawn somehow to go back to the, the famous... Uh, to, to, to Enid Blyton and uh, the, the, my favourite, I, I think I've already shared it with you, the fa- my favourite fe- uh, famous five fact, which is that the lashings of ginger beer that everybody goes on about, was the, she never used she only used the phrase lashings once when it was lashings of boiled eggs and why, why are we all so familiar with that phrase then, lashings of ginger beer? I think it's comic strip isn't it? it is comic strip, is it isn't really? it? Yeah. Is it just that? Five go mad in Dorset on the first night yeah. of Channel 4 mm. But uh, the, the, the award surely for was, yeah. pusillanimity in all kind of um, media kind of spheres has got to be the new Swallows and Amazons film where they have renamed the character Titty Tatty I mean that is just... I mean, honestly, that is just so pathetic. Do you not think that we, the audience could have coped with Titty as a name? Well, in all other respects, that film, I haven't seen it, but it seems to be, you know, it seems to be very much a keep calm and carry on style, yeah. lovely knitted jumpers and cakes. Is it a Brexit tea, movie? You know? It's a Brexit. <laughs> no, everything's Brexit now. Everything's Brexit. No, no, we've got to be careful because I love that. I, one, I love those books. And B, he's a really seriously good writer, Ransom. It was a seriously yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting man. But he was he was uh, he worked he worked spy, in Russia. He yeah, covered yeah. The, the Russian Revolution for the Guardian. So you're saying his decision to name the character Titty had so had communistic backdrop? No, no, not so. at all. I just think it was, was Letitia. Letitia. Oh, okay. just like, but also, you do, surely but everyone, everyone, everyone who reads it. Does what, everyone know, who sees it does exactly what they, knows they what read every, it, snigger for five minutes, and then yeah, get on with it. Everybody knows that that, and it's just sort of it's, why do that? It's just like a, yeah. as though that would matter. I mean, I haven't seen it. I have to say, I've still got the whatever it was, Virginia McKenna version from the <laughs> 1970s locked in my head, and I, I probably won't be able to get that out. I, uh, anyway, you know, I, Ransom is interesting. His old Peter's his folk, Russian folk tales book is a really remarkable book. Yeah, we should do him on here. Yeah. That would be great. And he's uh, lots of work. The journals. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Collected correspondence. <laughs> um, shall I tell you what I had to read? I did a talk on, on the uses of cheerfulness. So yeah. I read two, so a few things that were really, I hadn't read properly before. One was uh, The Art of Happiness, which is obviously in translation, not the original Latin. Greek. <laughs> <laughs> by Epicurus, which which is great. I kind of totally fell in love with with. Well, I've always I've always had a fondness for Epicurus, and the uh, his school. Not just because 
but, but largely because he's been a sort of victim of a kind of a hijacking, which is everybody thinks Epicureanism means you know drinking and eating too much. But mm. In fact, he was extremely uh, balanced and kind of um, uh, you know sensible. Person. Much like just, yourself, John. Much like <laughs> myself. But what he loved really was friendship, and it, food and drink yeah, were all right. part of friendship. Um, and he had this rather wonderful. I love this kind of. He had a little motto which he used to, which he used to sort of trot out when people were, were talking about. Um, it was basically, don't fear God, don't worry about death. What is good is easy to get, and what is terrible is easy to endure. It was called the Four Cures, and this is basically. It's kind of quite a useful philosophy for living. Really, it was. It was basically he didn't believe in that there was any need for the supernatural, that fear was the thing we were all really trying to avoid, and the fear of death or the fear of being found out. So incredibly wise and sensible, but so wise and sensible. His great, his great teacher was a guy called Democritus, who we all now know as the guy who su- suggested that the universe was composed of in, you know, particles called atoms that couldn't be, couldn't be divided any further. But Democritus was also known as the laughing philosopher, and he made himself incredibly unpopular in, um, <laughs> in Athens by just going around and laughing a lot. Plato, in particular, wouldn't even have his name mentioned. And I quite like it. I quite like the idea. He was, Plato, he was from the north. He was from the north. He was from Abdera yeah, in the north. And he arrived. He basically didn't believe. He was a materialist. You know, believed that the universe didn't believe in any of the gods, and would stand at the back going. Whoa, <laughs> I find that sort of school of things so the other thing I did was I read about Richard uh, a thing about Richard Feynman and, 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 but I, I just wanted to read one paragraph of Dickens because I was trying to find bits which encapsulated for me cheerfulness and all its and all its and this is the brilliant bit in Christmas Carol where the Fezziwigs do you remember the Fezziwigs yes, yes, yeah. yes. But it's, it's just a great bit of writing a positive light appeared to issue. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwig are broadly, I think, probably in their 60s as a couple. A positive light appeared to issue from Fezziwig's calves. They shone in every part of the dance like moons. You could have predicted at any given time what would become of them next. And when old Fezziwig and Mrs. Fezziwig had got all through the dance, advance and retire, hold hands with your partner, bow and curtsy, corkscrew, thread the needle and back again to your place, Fezziwig cut and cut deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs and came upon his feet again without a stagger. A small matter, said the ghost, to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. It isn't that, said Scrooge, heated by the remark and speaking unconsciously like his former, not his latter self. It isn't that, spirit. He has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it's impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. Mm. Just love that. <laughs> mm, that's great. And that's that idea that the words with idea, you know, small unremembered things. But um, You were talking there, you mentioned Richard Feynman there. Oh, I love I Feynman. must just mention this while it occurs to me. So one of the other things that's been happening... He's a great physicist, but also a madman. He used to write yeah, work yeah. and he used to go and... Go and, and lecturer, right? Amazing lecturer. Won the Nobel yeah. Prize at the age of 30. Right. Um, it was a guy who famously solved the, 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 the D-rings problem with a great bit of theatre where he, he took a frozen D-ring and snapped it in, the, in front of the Challenger investigation and proved that the, you know, that, that had been the problem. I, my, one of the other things that's been happening this uh, summer is that my son, uh, during his uh, school holidays, has been playing a game, has been playing a game for the, uh, on his new PlayStation called um, The Witness... Right, and the witness is a game where you are have to raise a bar. You are dumped. <laughs> no, listen, listen. It's, you are dumped on an abandoned island. You receive no instructions. All you have are a series of puzzles that you have to solve. And as you solve each puzzle, you learn something else about the island where you are staying. There are hundreds of these puzzles, but and it's fair, it's a great game. He's really enjoyed it. One of the strangest but most fascinating things about it is at certain points, as a reward, you will unlock a video clip. And the video clips are not as we might expect. Well, way to go, man. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They are... They are there's a ten-minute clip from Stalker by Tarkovsky. Really? <laughs> yeah. my, son, my son went, Dad, I'm not sure what's happening in the game. I said, like all viewers of Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then again, he, uh, we were playing one bit, and he, he, I, I, you'll, Richard Feynman pops up. Brilliant. And there's a ten-minute extract in black and white from a television lecture <laughs> by Feynman. And then there's another bit, and this this was the thing that made me. I nearly fell off my chair laughing. So you just you solve this logic puzzle. It's quite difficult. You have to move some blocks around. He did it. My son went yes. Immediately. A clip came on screen of his reward of uh, James Burke. (laughs) (laughs) A ten-minute extract from one of those brilliant James Burke programmes, right? And he was saying, what is this? I was going, who is that man? Who is that man? (laughs) It's wonderful, though. Absolutely wonderful. What's he called? The Witness? Yeah, the the game is called The Witness. It's terrific. Oh, it's good. But Feynman was was just one of the great... He was a brilliant genius physicist, obviously, but he was also just one of the... a sort of a life enhancer, full of exuberance. He was a bongo player, and he used to go and work. He'd he'd go and work in a sort of the local... in in, um, where he was in um, in California, um, whatever that... Institute of Technology, he'd go and work in a local kind of uh, strip bar in the in, in the in the afternoons. He was just uh, and spent a lot of his the last years of his life trying to get to Tuva, this Russian, this strange Russian republic. But he was also a fantastic lecturer, and and you know he was the person who said you know quantum physics. This great little quote from me. He said, "What I'm going to tell you about is what we teach our physics students in the third or fourth year of graduate school. It is my task to convince you not to turn away because you don't understand it. You see, my physics students don't understand." That is because I don't understand it. Nobody does. You've got to love that. You were, you, John, you were reading that brilliant extract from Dickens about cheerfulness. right? I would like to uh, <laughs> provide balance now <laughs> by, by reading. So uh, of my are we, 100... Are we ending on a high? Yeah, we? we are. Anita. Is so it Anita? It's Anita. Excellent. Everything leads back to Anita. So I've like, read, like read 137 books this year. My favourite of those books is a close thing. But my favourite I just read uh, a few weeks ago is Anita Bruckner's third novel, which is called Look at Me. Which, uh, for me, I read this and I thought, okay, well, this is one of these once in a decade things where you read something and you just think it's impossible to conceive of how this book could be any more perfect. It's so beautifully written, it's funny, it's incredibly moving, it's a book about books. Uh, it is, has um, a sort of feeling of existential horror about it as well as it goes on. I was sort of thinking, that, you know, is beer, is there anything it can't do? In the words of Homer Simpson, is there, is there anything? Is there anything that... that oh, is it television? Is there anything it can't do? Anyway, this, Anita Brook, this novel is so wonderful, and anyone listening to this... Anita Bruckner's first three novels, A Start in Life, Providence, and then this one, A Look at Me, kind of hang together as a trilogy. You could read those in the space of a few days. Your life would be enriched by doing so. But the, the, the first chapter of Look at Me ends with a paragraph which I have to say I read and I felt like someone had walked over my grave. Um, so I'm just going to read it and, and you'll, you'll probably see why I liked it so much. Uh, but it provides the perfect balance for the Dickens that you just read, right? The happy-go-lucky, the, the, the essential glory of being alive that you've just brought us. I'm, I'm here to bring us the counter-argument. And uh, so here we go. This is, this is the end of this chapter. That's why I write and why I have to. When I feel swamped in my solitude and hidden by it, physically obscured by it, rendered invisible in fact, writing is my way of piping up of reminding people that I am here. And when I've ordered my characters, plundered my store of images, removed from them all the sadness that I might feel in myself, then I can switch on that current that allows me to write so easily once I get started and to make people laugh. That, it seems, is what they like to do. (laughs) And if I manage this well enough and beguile all the dons and the critics, they will fail to register my real message which is a simple one. If my looks and my manner were of greater assistance to me, I could deliver this message in person. Look at me, I would say. Look at me. But since I am on my own in this matter, I must use subterfuge and guile. And with a bit of luck and good management, this particular message will never be deciphered, and my reasons for delivering it in this manner remain obscure. (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that is oh, yeah, magnificent. I think if ever there was a, a, a moment to end a podcast, <laughs> it has to be that. Um, Summer reading, everyone. Brilliant. Summer reading. Uh, that seems as good a point as any which to end. Uh, thanks, as usual, to Matthew Clayton, to producer Matt Hall, and thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod, on Facebook at, uh, at uh, forward slash BacklistedPod, and on our uh, page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye from me. Uh, happy autumn, everyone. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. See ya. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.